moment we'll have darshan, but an announcement before. There will be an April retreat and intensive titled The Power of the Self. It starts April 7th and culminates with a full day intensive on Sunday, April 11th. Retreats are a wonderful way to be profoundly nourished by the Shakti. At the intensive, Swamiji will give Shakti part, the awakening of the spiritual energy. So join us if you'd like to deepen your spiritual practice and spend time with Swamiji, Devi Ma and fellow seekers. You can attend in person or online. For bookings and more information, please visit theashram.com.au. I like to begin every program by uh, remembering and quoting my guru, Baba Muktananda, <coughs> who always began by saying in Hindi, Sabko Mane Kesat Premse Hardik Swagat. And that was the way he summed up the essence of satsang. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And satsang is the truest welcome. It's to welcome the soul of another person. So in that spirit, I want to welcome everybody <coughs> tonight. And in the study group, <coughs> study group we've been uh, recently started looking at a series of poems by the 10th century sage Utpaladev. <coughs> Utpaladev was the third third generation of uh, Shaivite sages in the Kashmir Shaivism uh, tradition. And he wrote some very uh, ponderous and heavy uh, works of philosophy, but to satisfy the other side of his nature, uh, he also wrote some beautiful poetry, devotional poetry to Shiva, or Supreme Consciousness. So this is a, these are a few verses from that. Utpaladev writes, speaking to Shiva, he says, let me tell you, O Lord, what is my joy and what is my sorrow? Union with you is joyousness. Separation from you is deep agony. For a yogi, that's the essence. When a yogi feels connected to the highest, to the divine, to the self within, he has perfect joy. And when the yogi feels not connected, separate from that, Nothing can make that yogi happy. He goes on, he says, there is within me a kind of darkness that keeps you hidden. Please wipe away that darkness, O Lord, and reveal your spotless form. I think anyone who practices yoga, meditation, understands what he's saying there. He's saying it's not just circumstances, it's not externals, but some, there's some, something inside that creates a separation, creates a block, some karmic situation, some wrong understanding, some negative emotion, something that keeps that block. And so he's acknowledging that there's a kind of darkness within that makes it hard to see the light. The yogis say there's a great light shining within us, yet we can't see that light. 
And what is it? It's some impurity, some obstacle within. So he asks Shiva, take that away. That's the easy way to do it. That's why we do yoga and all the practices is to get rid of that darkness. But he's taking the short route. He's taking, saying, hey, boss, take it away. <clears throat> Which is why uh, the path of devotion is so delightful. You just ask to get everything removed. He goes on, he says, please remove the obstacles within me that block the experience of the nectar of your non-duality. Let me see God everywhere. Let me see Shiva everywhere. Let me see no separation. He says, make me aware of the true essence of things. Make me worthy, O great Shiva, of the worship of your feet. Make, make me worthy not to be an abject acolyte, but to connect with that highest power, with that consciousness, with that bliss. So this is from uh, Utpaladev. But that's not, we're not doing Utpaladev tonight, we're doing Bhagavan Nityananda. You might have guessed by the chant. But first I have to uh, tell you a sad thing, and that is uh, our beloved George, uh, Dr. George Tippett, uh, passed away this morning. Uh, he was quite elderly, he was 93 or 94. Is, do we have the... <coughs> there's, uh, there's Dear George and Bhagwan Nityananda. Can you tell which is which? <laughs> we loved him very much. He came for many years. He was always uh, good value. He had his own way of thinking and speaking, so uh, he's now with Bhagwan. <clears throat> and uh, we noticed one of Bhagwan Nityananda's disciples was a Swami named Digambar Swami, and he's got a Samadhi shrine, he's buried in the village of Ganeshpuri. And some of us visited the various, there are many uh, Samadhi shrines in Ganeshpuri and its environs, and when we visited his Samadhi Shrine, this Digambar Swami, just a few blocks away from, uh, from Bhagwan's temple, um, we were all struck because Digambar Swami, in the, in the portrait that's there, is the spitting image of George, and this is Digambar Swami. <laughs> it's as though George were dressed up, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. So we gave him the name Digambar. <laughs> and we love our George, and tomorrow we're going to dedicate the Guru Gita for him. So rest in peace. Rest in ecstasy in the arms of Bhagwan. So tonight, uh, the, fittingly enough, uh, our subject is Bhagwan. Do we have some photos? There he is. That, that portrait was... Baba's, Baba Muktananda's favorite picture of Bhagwan. He's sitting in a yogic posture. Baba loved to meditate on this pose. And then when he, when he decided to have a statue, well, when I first got to the ashram, there was this, there was a painting made of this pose. And then after a few months, a statue in this pose came, a lifelike Statue. So Baba loved this, this pose. This is 
Bhagwan. What else do we have? What's he saying there? A-OK. -okay. <laughs> he may be laughing at a joke. Who knows? Very mysterious, Bhagwan. And what else? We have how many? And there he is in a marvelous posture. <clears throat> he used to lie like that. And if he, if he met visitors, if he didn't like you, he'd turn his back to you. <laughs> Roll over. Is that it? Or is there one more? Ah, uh, devotees approaching Bhagwan. Do it, they're doing arti. There must be a, a marriage. Uh, and that's uh, probably in Kailas Nivas. So tonight we hear of Bhagwan Nityananda. <clears throat> and I found something I think you're going to like, uh, an account of a first meeting with Bhagwan Nityananda. Uh, it was very nice to hear Swami Dargananda's first uh, coming to the ashram, that first experience. They're always wonderful, these first things. Uh, and this is by a, a significant figure. And his name is Swami Rudrananda, or Rudy. And Rudy was, uh, <coughs> He's, uh, he's an important teacher in our lineage and guru of Swami Chaitanananda and, and many others in the lineage. <clears throat> and he, this is an account of Rudy's meeting. He only met Bhagwan Nityananda once, and that must have been in 1960, a year before he died. <clears throat> and then... Uh, for the next 10 years, he was a student of Baba Muktananda. He used to come uh, to India once a year. But this is the account of his first impressions. I think you'll enjoy it. <clears throat> the writer says, Swami Bhagavan Nityananda was renowned in the southern and western parts of India and was regarded by many as one of the most important modern saints of the 20th century. Rudy's chance meeting with him in Ganeshpuri, India, transformed the course of Rudy's inner work for the rest of his life. And Rudy was uh, an antique dealer in New York City, in Greenwich Village, uh, and he used to go traveling in the East and acquire statues, some of them probably uh, kind of illicit from temples and so on. Uh, but that was what he was doing at that time. <clears throat> Back in 1960, Rudy was preparing to move to New Zealand at the instructions of his then spiritual teacher, Pak Sabud. And Pak Sabud was an Indonesian spiritual teacher. Uh, <clears throat> although moving to distant lands was not exactly what he wanted to do, Rudy, not one to hesitate, began liquidating his business and huge art collection in preparation. He made a trip to India with the intent of disbanding his network of people who had been assisting his business endeavors. While in Bombay, he stayed with his friend Bibi, a multimillionaire with a penchant for saint hunting. Upon his arrival, Bibi implored Rudy to go with him to visit his latest find, Bhagwan Nityananda, in Ganeshpuri, a small town carved out of the jungle about two hours away. And this is from John Mann's book, Rudy, 14 Years with My Teacher. Rudy. This quotes Rudy. Rudy says, 
<clears throat> we left the car and walked to a plain building and then through a doorway that led to the large room where the saint held audience. So he's in Ganeshpuri and he's going into what we know, those of you who've been there, is Kailas Nivas, which is the ashram that Bhagwan Nityananda lived in the last five years of his life. And if you remember what the ashram's like, it's one of the most singular buildings I've ever encountered. Um, but it, it, you walk into a big central room, and that's where Bhagwan met people. That was his darshan room. Then in the back of all the nooks and crannies that he used to live in. Uh, so he walks into the main room at Kailas Nivas. <clears throat> the first impression was overwhelming. There were people crowded in every corner in a state of religious hysteria. <laughs> in the front of the room sat a large, dark man in a semi-trance. I was completely repelled. <laughs> what was I, a sophisticated Westerner, doing in this weird scene? How could this utterly strange man have anything important to give me? And you saw pictures of me be there in just a loincloth. And uh, he didn't even seem to be aware of his physical surroundings. He was absorbed in some meditative state. For one long moment, I was filled with the impulse to turn around and walk away. But I've learned not to trust my instinctive reactions. Instead, Bibi and I watched as people streamed by the saint, receiving a blessing or asking him a question. A few minutes passed, then to my dismay, we were led to the front of the room. Before I could say anything, I found myself being presented to the holy man, who seemed completely indifferent to me. I was asked if I had a question. Only one thing occurred to me, so I told him I was planning to move to New Zealand shortly and asked if this was the right thing for me to do. I wasn't sure why I asked since I already knew the answer. The saint's response was unbelievable. You are completely out of your mind, he said. <laughs> <laughs> Any decision that you make must be wrong. Go home. <laughs> I was deeply shocked. With one stroke, it cut through the fabric of my whole life. I left the room in a daze. <laughs> On the way back to Bombay, Bibi asked me what I had thought of the experience. Before I could answer, he told me that Nityananda was considered to be an incarnation of the elephant god, Ganesh. I asked him who Ganesh was, trying to cover my shocked condition. <clears throat> and then the writer says, Rudy soon realized the truth of Nityananda's words. Returning to New York to rebuild his business and life all over again, Rudy journeyed back to India the following year in hopes of visiting with him again, only to discover that Sri Nityananda had taken his Maha Samadhi died. <clears throat> Shortly thereafter, Rudy discovered that the experience of meeting Nityananda had had a tremendous effect on his inner life, taking a whole year to re realize it. Nityananda's energy and spiritual force was now moving through him in extraordinary ways that would alter Rudy's spiritual trajectory for the rest of his life. So obviously, uh, Bibi took him 
to meet Baba, uh, and then he made a very strong connection with Baba and visited him yearly. Uh, and so I met Rudy my first year uh, in Ganeshpuri. <coughs> There's another story there. I don't know. Should I tell this story? You don't want to hear. No, the story was that that um, uh, that Rudy went to Baba and said that Pak Sabur had put a curse on him, uh, like to kill him. And Baba said to him, "As long as you're with me, you're safe." And then Rudy left Baba and uh, soon expired. So. That's that's the story. I don't believe that, of course. <coughs> Terrible story, isn't it? <laughs> what? Huh? He was in a plane crash. He was in a plane crash. It was a, a small plane crash, and everyone lived except Rudy. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. But of course, he left Baba. So the story goes, but we don't have to explain it and accept that. So now we go. <laughs> I would have left Baba many times except for that story. <laughs> Terrible, huh? Okay, so now some, some of Bhagwan Nityana. Bhagwan, as you saw, and as you heard, uh, had his own ways. And he never, he wasn't the kind of saint that gives coherent uh, teachings and a logical philosophy and, uh, you know, and writes books and things like that. Uh, he, it was his very presence that was the great teacher and that awakened people uh, but occasionally he would utter things, and they were very odd and quirky things. But uh, dev one particular devotee wrote down many of the things that he uttered, and because of that we have some of these texts which are just fascinating. So these are from Bhagwan Nityananda's utterances. <clears throat> he says, To ride a horse safely in a crowd of 2,000 people <laughs> requires a capable rider. I always think that that Bhagwan is observing something in, um, in. If you think of it this way, he sees something in the village, and he noticed there's somebody riding a horse, and there's lots of people around, and he looks around and says, "He must be a capable rider." And then he says, and then he abstracts it and makes it spiritual. He says, "Intelligence is above." mind is below. Intelligence is king, mind is minister. This is, the translation would be buddhi is, is intellect, higher mind, and manas is regular mind. Uh, the, the conceptual mind, the mind that judges, that understands abstractions, that's the higher mind. So the higher mind has to be in charge and the lower mind the emotional mind and so on has to be below. So he's saying, uh, just like you have to be a capable rider to, to ride a horse, there has to be somebody in charge who's capable. So the mind has to be governed by the intellect. 
That's what he's saying, something like that. He says, intelligence is king, mind is the minister. Mind must be subordinate to intelligence. So we shouldn't let our senses and our emotions run us. Our understanding should run us. Profound understanding of the truth. The first is, then he says, the first is sound, the second is the impression that follows. The self is the inner guru. The outer guru is the one who initiates. To do and to teach is the outer guru. To realize is the inner guru. So he's saying that you're awakened by the outer guru, but the realization has to be within, the inner self, the inner guru. There is no guru without aspiration. The only people who walk the path are those who have mumukshutra, who, who have a desire to know the truth. Alas, the vast majority of human beings don't have that desire at this stage. But those who do, they want to walk the path. They want to know themselves. They want to know the answer to who am I. And they want to know who they are in the most profound way. So there's no guru without aspiration. Unless you aspire, you don't need a guru. He says, when you have aspiration, you require the outer guru. And that's what Swami Durgananda's thing was reminding me of, uh, that I was, I, I was overwhelmed by the desire to meet a teacher at one stage. Before that, before that moment, I had no interest in it whatsoever. Then through circumstances, things had happened, I had this incredible desire, and I had some knowing for no reason that I would meet, I would go to India and I would meet the right teacher, and that's all happened like that. He says, when you have aspiration, you acquire the outer guru. The outer guru leads you to the well, the inner guru drinks from it. Even if you meet the outer guru, if you don't have aspiration, and if you don't do the practice, and if you don't follow the instructions, you won't attain that. But if you have aspiration, true aspiration, to know the self, then everything will happen. You have to be tough enough to go through the ignorance and the difficulties that arise on the path, and then you can make that attainment. Another one. Fire has spread itself everywhere. It is the highest of all. It is essential to all creation. First, we must realize ourselves and then impart it to others. I don't know how he got from fire to that, but the fire of realization must be spread, must be shared. First, we must realize ourselves and then impart it to others. It's very natural want to share something great with those you love, with other people. When you know the self, you want to share that with other people. He says, this is the highest duty of man. Highest duty of man is to share what they've discovered. When you feel pain, you must realize that others have pain just like you. When you feel hungry, you must realize that others have hunger just like you. We must think that what is our goal is also the goal of others. They're talking about 
empathy and compassion. We have a natural feeling, unless we've so corrupted by all kinds of negative thoughts, uh, all of us want what's best for ourselves and for others. He says, when a physician develops a new medicine and does not reveal it to others till his death, the medicine is lost to the world with him. One who does not know the ways and means to realize God is not a man. For the yogis, they say, the essence of life is to know God, to know the self, to know the highest. That's an aspiration we all have, although it's blunted by the culture and by uh, superficial thinking. We all want to know the truth. And we don't, we don't really fulfill ourselves. We can be successful, we can be wealthy, we can do a lot of things, but we won't really feel fulfilled until we really know the truth, the self. He says, the most supreme knowledge is the knowledge of God. This knowledge must be imparted to others so that they may understand it. Those who are hungry must be fed. Nobody asks you about God unless he has discriminative power. Now, nobody will be interested in that unless they start to awaken. Some intelligence awakens in them. Then they become interested. <clears throat> so that's a very compassionate and teacherly one. Here's another. One who has dissolved the mind is the universal guru. He has uprooted all desire. The true renunciant has burned all desire to ashes. He is the universal guru. I'm saying that through yoga, through meditation, a person stays centered in the self and desires that come up, fears that come up, movements of anger that come up are burnt, they're burnt to a seed, which means that they don't motivate that person. A person doesn't act out of anger or desire. These things might arise, but through discriminative intelligence, that person can get rid of them and remain focused in the self. He says, for those who have renounced desire, the universe is within. When you get, when you get lost in desire for externals, you lose touch with the self. When you stop pursuing all these things, you find the self within. The spiritual path is the heart space, the akasha. The spiritual path is actually inside. It is light, consciousness, divine light, fire, internal fire, fire of discrimination. Very colorful way he's describing it. There's a fire inside, a wisdom inside, a light that's inside that we can connect to. Often we're lost in dullness, stupidity, confusion. But inside there's a glowing light that we can find that. Here's one called the Avadut. An Avadut is what Bhagwan Nityananda was, somebody very unconventional. Somebody so lost, 
so connected to the self, doesn't care about anything outside. Why not? Because it's completely fulfilled. He or she, completely fulfilled inside. We're all searching for fulfillment. <clears throat> Today I took part in a, uh, an online uh, international seminar about happiness. And one of the participants saying that everybody is seeking happiness. Everyone is seeking happiness. Everybody. Every human being. It's just people can't tell what, a, what will give them happiness and will give them misery. Some people pursue things that make them miserable thinking they're pursuing happiness. You ever been like that? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> but, but a yogi knows that where happiness truly lies, which is inside, in the self, and knows how to pursue that. And the Avadut is anchored in that state. So Bhagwan says, and he's talking about himself. Let's just say this is a self-portrait of Bhagwan, Bhagwan Nityananda. The Avadut knows that birth and death are illusions of the body. So first thing he's saying, he doesn't care if he lives or dies. We're all very attached to all these things. He doesn't. He, has no, he is no more identified with the body then an ordinary man is identified with his garments. Well, Bhagwan's certainly not identified with his garments, is he? <clears throat> but the analogy is interesting that, that uh, for an avidut, the body is something that you put on and cast off, just like you put your clothes on and cast them off. The self, the soul, lives in the body. <clears throat> He's gone beyond all qualities and shines with the full glow of self-realization. The full glow of self-realization. When I met Baba, one of the things I noticed about him is that he glowed. I always think he glowed in the dark. He glowed with self-realization. It's because he, he had an inner light. He wasn't looking to light his fire externally. The fire was alive inside him. That's the state of the... Abadut. It says, he's at once the light and all that is illuminated, fully aware, a Raja Yogi. That's what we call Shiva Yogi or Siddha Yogi. He's the highest path. <clears throat> the Abadut has no sense of I. He's gone beyond ego. He sees all as a projection of self. All this is me, he thinks. He views all with equal pleasure. No matter where he wanders, he has no sense of duality. He is not bothered by thirst or hunger. If food is available, he eats. When it's not available, he does not ask for it. This is Bhagwan. Food comes to him, <clears throat> he'll take it. Those who offer him poison or those who offer him milk, they are the same to the Avadut. That's a very high bar, isn't it? Those who hate him, those who love him, he has equal vision. He loves those who hate him, he loves those who love him. <clears throat> those who beat him and those who love him, they are the same to the Avadut. To the Avadut, the universe is father, 
mother, family. He contains the entire universe. The universe is merged in him. That's Bhagwan's self-portrait. <clears throat> and I've got, how are we doing? Are you in a Bhagwan trance? Do you get a sense of where he's coming from? It's not ordinary. <clears throat> Here are a couple about mantra, the method, of the, one of the great methods. Bhagavan, of course, takes it to the highest level, what mantra is. Bhagavan says, mantra is all-pervading. Like the dawn of the sun, mantra is the witness of all things. Mantra is the most frightful of all forms. Mantra is fire, Agni. There is nothing greater than fire. All is fire, both within and without. He clearly has a thing for fire, doesn't he? Fire is a mysterious entity, so the fire of yoga. <clears throat> Earth is in the middle. Above is air. <clears throat> Vayu. Air is in the universe. The universe is in the air. Air is first, fire second. Thought is first, sound is second. Don't ask me to explain these things. Soundlessness is in the form of air. Soundlessness is eternal delight. In the stillness, there's bliss. It is Satchitananda. It is being consciousness bliss, which is the formula that uh, the Upanishads and the Vedas talk about the highest, Brahman. It's Sat, Chit, and Ananda. It's one thing, but it can be perceived in different ways, as beingness, as awareness, and as emotion, as joy, as bliss. It is Sat, Chit, Ananda, being, knowledge, delight, we would say bliss. Merge yourself in soundlessness. Find the stillness at the center of your being. The words whirl around, all the thoughts, blah, blah, I gotta do this, gotta do that, this one hates me, that one loves me, this is that, 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 gotta do this. And we're, we're assaulted interiorly by words, but saying, find the silence beneath the words. Merge yourself in soundlessness. All the visible universe is in the self. When chit and sat are merged, there is bliss, joy, delight. This chit, consciousness, and beingness, when they come together, they give rise to delight, joy. He says, the delight of discrimination which is insight, wisdom. Vivekananda, the bliss of wisdom. The delight of consciousness, Chaitanya Ananda. Chaitanya is consciousness, so the bliss of consciousness. <clears throat> the delight of Brahman, Brahmananda. The delight of the Supreme, Paramananda. The eternal delight, Nityananda, that's his own name. These are all Swami names, too. That they're aspirational names. That's, you know, 
these are names that uh, we have to live up to. The delight of being in consciousness, Satchitananda. This is true adulthood. This is wisdom. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of yoga, the wisdom of time. The three-time wisdom is in the heart. The three times are what? What are the three times? Past, present, future. So the essence of time is in the heart. Liberation is in the heart. Eternal bliss is in the heart. You can't approach that with your rational mind, can you? You have to let it kind of pour over you. One more on mantra. The mantra vibrates like a storm in the sky. <laughs> wow. That's a good line. Spanda, the spanda principle, the mantra recapitulates the vibration of the divine, like a storm in the sky. It's powerful vibratory movement. It has neither beginning nor end. It is the stage manager of the divine drama. The body of man is a string of om. It is filled with mantra. All that is inside us, outside us, everywhere, is born of mantra. In the beginning, God said, Om, and everything came from that Om. We do not need to search for it. It is present in everything. No special effort is needed to recall it to memory. The Shakti that is the mantra is not finite. It is infinite and indivisible. It exists in all creatures. The sound produced by any creature is nothing but mantra. Pranava, om, is mantra. Every animal has its own sound. Every person has their own sound. That is their mantra. This is very far out mysticism. <clears throat> Bhagwan says, Ignorance and knowledge are not real. Neither pain nor pleasure has effect. Om is everywhere. Wherever you place your faith, that becomes all. The Shakti, that is mantra, fills and penetrates the universe. It is formless. It is the light in all directions. Marvelous. What a brain. <clears throat> Let's meditate. <laughs> There's nowhere to go with that. Uh, you could write a big commentary on it, but you wouldn't get to first base. <clears throat> but um, let's meditate. And what we want to find is what he's talking about, the essence of all things, the mantra at the core of our being, sat-chit-ananda, our beingness, our consciousness, and our joy. Let's meditate on that. So we'll turn within. We're going to meditate for 10 minutes. So for Sat, experience your beingness. You're alive, you're present, you be, you is. 
experience what it's like to be. You be. That's your sat, your being. Now your chit element, your consciousness, you're aware. You're aware right now. Right in this very instant, your awareness is. Focus for a moment on your awareness. And now the ananda or the bliss aspect. Sometimes we don't feel bliss, but we have some feeling or other. So it refers to our feeling aspect. So first let's start with I feel. I am, I think, and I feel. I feel. Now, Bhagwan says the mother of all feelings, the essential feeling, the underlying feeling is joy and peace. We may not be in touch with that, but if we go deep into present feeling, we can find that joy. So meditate on present feeling and go deep into it till we find the bliss that's at the center of it. And we'll meditate for 10 minutes. Once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Let's meditate. Hi, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not check out Swamiji's latest book, Ganesh Pri Days, Memoirs of a Western Yogi. It's about the time he spent in India with his guru, Baba Muktananda, in the 1970s, and it's a great read. To get a copy, go to GaneshPriDays.com. That's G-A-N-E-S-H-P-U-R-I, days.com. Wherever you are in the world, you can get the book on Kindle or printed in your own country.